Thanks, Adam. If you have a Bible, you want to open it up to Luke chapter 17. We're going to continue forward in the Gospel of Luke, which means we're going to be in verses 11 to 19. While you get yourself settled, um, Libby Skillman, our children's pastor, she's uh, midway through her sabbatical. Her and, her and John are in Florida um, spending some time with a couple of friends and just getting some time to sort of uh, disconnect and be away. And so I thought it would be good sort of midway through that if we as a congregation, if you know Libby, if you've got her cell phone number or even just you think of it later this week to send her an email, her, the rest of our children's team can get those over to her. But I thought it would be good if, if we just all took a minute and sent her some encouragement, let her know you're praying for her, that you're praying that her time away is refreshing and rejuvenating for her. Let her know that you love her, appreciate her ministry here, maybe something about what that's meant to you and your family. But um, while she's away, I just want her to know that we miss her, that we love her, we appreciate the work that she does here. Um, And we're looking forward to when she comes back, but that we're also praying that her time away is, is refreshing. Sound good? All right. Depending on what your translation is, starting in verse 11 of Luke chapter 17, you've probably got a heading that says something along the lines of 10 lepers cleansed, 10 men healed, something like that. This is a passage that's pretty well known, an account from Jesus's life that if you're familiar with your Bible, familiar with the Gospels, it's one that you would, you would likely recognize. Um, But there's a tendency with passages such as this one to take it and to just try and get like the moral lesson out of it. That's what a fable is. A fable is a short, succinct story. Um, Usually involves like animals that talk or some like sort of legendary aspects like nature that is humanized and those kinds of things. But the whole purpose of the fable is to lead you to a moral point. Sometimes that point is made at the end of the fable. Sometimes it's not. So like the tortoise and the hare, that's a fable. There's a rabbit and a turtle, a tortoise. And one day the hare, for whatever reason, challenges the tortoise to a race. Tortoise agrees. The fox is the one who starts the race and the hare takes off and he gets a giant lead and he decides to just kind of rub it in the tortoise's face. So he lays down to take a nap Meanwhile, the tortoise just goes tortoising by the hare while he's snoozing there and actually arrives at the finish line first. And the fable doesn't tell you, but the point of that fable is slow and steady wins the race, right? Like we kind of, we know that that's what that fable is about. There's a tendency at times to want to read the Bible as if what it primarily is, is a collection of stories that give us moral imperatives, Well, you just read the story and you get the moral out and then act according to what the moral is. But the Bible's not a collection of stories or fables that teach us moral lessons. If anything, the Bible actually displays for us that all the moral lessons in the world can do nothing to help us because our sin is such that we could not live according to one moral lesson, let alone this many pages full of them. When we take any passage of the Bible and we turn it into a story with a moral point, what we do is we end up loading ourselves down with burdens that we cannot possibly bear and we end up heaping upon our souls 
this like weight that makes it impossible for us to be brought near to God. The other thing that happens when we read the Bible that way is that we approach the Bible in a way that's actually backwards from how we're supposed to approach it. If you come to the Bible and your primary thing is to find the moral of the story so that you can live a better life, you approach the Bible and you read it with me, me, me as the lens. What does this say to me? What does this say about me? What does this say for me? God revealed himself in scripture as a way to say, him, 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 him. This is who he is. And anything from scripture that we take away that tells us about ourselves, and there is a lot, always tells us about ourselves in relation to him. He reveals who he is, why that matters, and then the lens shifts over to us and how it is that we would live in relationship to who he is. So what we have this morning is an account of 10 individuals who have leprosy and they're healed. But the point of the passage really isn't even the healing. It's about how the 10 individuals respond to the healing. But you push it one step further. We're actually learning something about who Jesus is as he reacts to the 10 who are healed and their response to him. So if you've got it there in front of you, we're going to read this multiple times over the next 30 minutes or so. Here's time number one, Luke 17, starting in verse 11. While he was traveling to Jerusalem, he passed between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, 10 men with leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and raised their voices saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he told them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And while they were going, they were cleansed. But one of them, seeing that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice gave glory to God. He fell face down at his feet, thanking him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus said, were not 10 cleansed? Where are the nine? Didn't any return to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he told him, get up and go on your way. Your faith has saved you. Let's pray. God, thanks for this morning, the chance to come and to worship, to take communion, to be reminded of your sacrifice on the cross, the giving of your son, that by your grace we might be saved. God, thank you for your word and how it is that you reveal yourself to us. God, I pray that your spirit would Be among us, take the truth of your word, press it deeply into our hearts and our minds, and your word being used by your spirit, transform us. Transform us into the image of Christ, transform us into humble, willing, joyful followers of him, transform us so that we proclaim the truth and the beauty of the gospel to the ends of the earth. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. It's fairly easy to read this nine-verse stretch, kind of close your Bible and say, well, the point is to be grateful. One guy was grateful, nine weren't. That's the moral, Walk and then to kind of walk away. Play that all the way out, though. If the story is simply a moral tale, and the implication is that if you're grateful enough, like the one man, then you'll be saved, what have you created there? You've created a self-salvation strategy. And that's kind of what our hearts want. 
just give me the list of rules, provide for me the grading rubric, I'll carry it out to the very best of my ability and hope it all shakes out in the end. But the problem is that no matter what self-salvation method or rubric or framework you put in place, the rubber's gonna meet the road at the same spot every single time. In this instance, how much gratitude's enough? Like how much gratitude displayed how many times is enough so that when you stand before the Lord, you'll be forgiven? What happens when you aren't grateful like you should be? How many ungrateful moments until you've disqualified yourself? You woke up breathing this morning. Did you immediately express your gratitude? And if you didn't, are you now in mortal, eternal danger? That's what happens with any self-salvation strategy or framework we put in place. How much of that thing is enough? How much of it is required? When have the scales tipped against you? Hear me clearly right from the start this morning. Followers of Jesus should absolutely be a grateful people. There's absolutely no question about that. We have so much to be grateful for, namely the fact that God in his grace has opened our eyes and our hearts to the fact that Jesus died on the cross in our place and that through God's grace, by faith in that work, we can be saved. But be more grateful isn't actually very helpful to us. Nor do I think it is primarily the point that we're supposed to take away from this account and we'll work our way through that. We're gonna make, I'm gonna make one point this morning. I'm just gonna hammer away on it for a while here. And it's that followers of Jesus consistently turn and return to Jesus. It's important as we jump into this passage that we sort of remind ourselves on what Luke's purpose is in even writing his gospel. Then we're gonna walk our way slowly through the account. Then we'll do a little bit of application. You don't need to flip there, but in chapter one, right off the jump, Luke tells us why he's gone to all of the work to write this account, the Gospel of Luke, as well as his next account, which is the book of Acts. He says this in verses three and four. It seemed good to me since I have carefully investigated everything from the very first to write to you in an orderly sequence so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. Why does Luke go to all of this effort so that his reader, which is Theophilus initially, and everyone else since then, might know with certainty about the Jesus that we hear about. Luke's primary intent is biographical. Who was Jesus? What did he do? What was he like? Why does it matter? That's what Luke's doing. He investigated all of it. He got together with the disciples. He got together with eyewitnesses. He compiled everyone's accounts. He wrote them down in an orderly sequence, we're told so that people would know for sure who this Jesus is. Therefore, every narrative account like this one, every teaching, every miracle, every clash with the Pharisees, every tender and gentle interaction with a lost person, everything else that finds its way into the Gospel of Luke is there to help us know with certainty everything we need to know about this man, Jesus of Nazareth. And so as you read any portion of the gospel of Luke or any portion of the gospels in general or any section of scripture, we have to keep that framework in mind. Does Luke include what he includes in order to give us moral lessons? No, he includes what he includes in order to teach us about Jesus. So as we read this passage this morning, what are we supposed to be taking away? 
We're supposed to be taking away something that helps us have certainty about who Jesus is. So let's read it again. While he was traveling to Jerusalem, that's Jesus, he passed between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten men with leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he told them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And while they were going, they were cleansed. But one of them, seeing that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice gave glory to God. He fell face down at his feet, thanking him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus said, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Didn't any return to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he told him, Get up and go on your way. Your faith has saved you. What do we know about Jesus at this point? Kind of two-thirds of the way through the Gospel of Luke. Let's just think through it. The book starts not even just with the birth of Jesus. It actually starts with the lead-up to the conception of Jesus. And the first thing you get in the Gospel of Luke is that the conception of Jesus was miraculous. Then you get his birth. And at his birth, there was this like supernatural rejoicing. Angels appear in a field near Bethlehem where Jesus has been born. And they are praising God and glorifying him in a loud voice, saying glory to God in the highest and peace on earth to his people. But his birth doesn't just cause supernatural rejoicing. There's earthly rejoicing. The shepherds go and they see him and they rejoice. Simeon at the temple holds Jesus in his arms and he rejoices. We're told that before Jesus is even born, Mary with Jesus in her womb goes to visit Elizabeth and John the Baptist in Elizabeth's womb leaps for joy inside of her. And John the Baptist is born first and he gets into his public ministry first and John the Baptist is out saying that people need to repent because the kingdom of heaven is coming. And that there is one coming who John is not worthy to untie his sandals. So everything that you see about John and how amazing he is, John is telling you this Jesus is greater. Then he begins his public ministry by walking into a synagogue in Nazareth and he opens up a passage from Isaiah and he reads this prophecy about someone who's been anointed, the spirit of the Lord is upon, who's going to set the captives free and give sight to the blind. And Jesus then delivers a one-sentence sermon. Today in your hearing, this has been fulfilled. So Jesus is saying, I'm the fulfillment of that Old Testament prophecy. And then in Galilee, his ministry sort of really kicks off in earnest. He's casting out demons, displaying that he has authority over the spiritual, over even the demonic. He's calming storms, healing people, multiplying food. He's got authority over natural forces. He's teaching, and people are remarking about the nature of the teaching, saying, who is this man who teaches with such authority? Jesus says from his own mouth that he's come to seek and save the lost. It's not the healthy who need a sick or a doctor, but the sick. He clashes with the religious elite. He comforts the spiritually outcast. He's forgiving sin, offering salvation, saying that he's the only way to relationship with the Father. He also is not predicting the future. He's stating What's going to happen? I'm going to be betrayed into the hands of men. I will be killed and I will raise on the third day. 
And all of that is sort of encompassed in this language that Luke keeps using about the kingdom of God. And so by the time you get to Luke chapter 17, two-thirds of the way through, you've got a pretty good idea about who Jesus is. And the point is supposed to be that he is the king who rules and reigns as the king of the kingdom of God. That is who Jesus is. Luke wants you to know with certainty this is who Jesus of Nazareth is. And then we come to today's passage. Continues to show us something about what it means that Jesus is king and something about what it means for those who recognize that Jesus is this king of the kingdom. And it's loaded with little phrases here that if we slow down enough to notice them, actually give us a ton of information about what it is that we should notice in the passage. And so we're just gonna work through this slowly, literally sort of phrase by phrase. Verse 11, while he was traveling to Jerusalem. That's the section of Luke's gospel that we're in. It started back at the end of chapter nine. Luke is just resetting the scene for us that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Why is he headed there? Well, we know why he's headed there. He's already said it. Jesus knows that he has to go to Jerusalem so that he can be betrayed by the hands of men, killed and raised on the third day. And so what do we know about Jesus? He's going there willingly. Like he knows what awaits him in that place and he's choosing to go there. In fact, in Luke chapter nine, we're told that he determines to go there. Like nothing's going to stop him from going to that place and fulfilling the will of the father. Okay, so while he's traveling to Jerusalem, he passes between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, 10 men with leprosy met him. That's important. Jesus is not in the village yet. He's on his way into the village. And why is that important? Or why does it matter? Well, because the 10 leprous individuals can't go into the town. If you want to get like the full backstory on how it was that Jewish or Samaritan people at this time were supposed to act when they had leprosy, an infectious skin disease, go to Leviticus 13 and 14. Jot it down if you want to go read it later. It won't be the most fascinating reading you've ever done. It won't be the most applicable reading you've ever done because you don't have to do those things anymore. But it is the context in which Jesus intersects these 10 individuals. One of the stipulations that came with an infectious skin disease like leprosy was that the individuals had to be quarantined outside the city. Now, quarantine, there's a word we all know, something we're all familiar with, but this is wildly different than getting COVID and being, or coming into contact with it and being told you need to spend 10 or five days inside your house. If you went to the priest because you had a legion on your arm and you showed it to the priest and the priest said, that's an infectious skin disease, you were sent outside of town not back to your house. So put that into today's world. You've got some sort of sore on your arm. You come to me and me with all of my medical knowledge says, Ugh, looks like infectious skin disease. You've got two options. Option number one, you can go west on 152. Keep going until you get outside of town right there about where it intersects with 435 where no human being would be outside of their car and you can hang out there. Or hop on 291 and go south. Keep driving until you cross the river. Get real close to the landfill where no human being would be outside of their car. You can stay there. And by the way, 
There's no cure for this thing. I can offer you nothing to help it go away. I may not ever see you again because the likely reality is that this thing is gonna degenerate to the point that you die out there. Peace and blessings. That's the situation that these 10 men are in. That's why they've been sent outside of the town. That's why they're not in the town when Jesus interacts with them. And that's why in the next sentence of verse 12, they stood at a distance and raised their voices. Because one of the other stipulations was that if you got sent outside of town for one of these infectious skin diseases, you had to become the herald of your own disease. Like no one else could get close to you and you were responsible for letting somebody else know before they got near you, I am unclean. And the issue is certainly a medical one because these skin diseases were highly infectious. But more so than that, it's an issue of purity. You are unclean. You're impure. You cannot go and worship in the temple. You cannot be part of your community. The whole deal in the Old Testament is that the people of God are distinguished by the fact that they worship Yahweh according to his law. That's what set them apart. Well, now you're unclean. You're not fit to do that. You need to go outside of town, and if you get better, you can come back and rejoin your people. And it's worth noting, these 10 men are doing everything by the book, not sneaking into town. They're not trying to get close to Jesus. They do everything as they are supposed to do it. When they raise their voices and yell out to him, they say, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. We've been doing a slow trek through the Gospel of Luke for over 12 months now, so it would be hard to string all of this together. But that word master, if you sat down and you read the whole Gospel of Luke in one setting, you would notice that it pops up quite a bit out of the mouth of Jesus' disciples. This is the only place in the entire Gospel where it comes out of the mouth of someone who's not one of Jesus' disciples. That's worth noticing. These 10 men, unclean, living outside of town, they're pleading with Jesus for mercy on the basis of what? His authority is master. Like we've heard something about this guy. He's healed other people. He's actually touched a leper, I heard. He's multiplied food. He's calmed down storms. He's casting out demons. Hey, master, have mercy on us. And when they say have mercy on us, they mean cleanse us. Save us from this disease. Bring us back into our community. Bring us back into worship. Make us pure. Make us clean. Then notice verse 14. This is interesting. When he saw them. It's not that he hears. It's that Jesus sees. That's another thing that's happening all throughout all four of the gospels. Jesus sees and he is moved. He sees the crowds, and we're told that he saw them like sheep without a shepherd and had compassion on them. He sees into people's hearts and minds, we're told, and then he acts accordingly. In most of Jesus' healing accounts, he physically sees the person who needs healing. There's a woman who reaches out in a crowd once, and Jesus stops the whole procession. Why? He wants to see her. Who touched me? And when he sees, he acts. We see with sin-stained eyes and we do the best job we can to do what is right or righteous. Jesus sees with perfect, righteous, holy, omniscient eyes and he always, ever, only 
does what's perfect in response. So he sees these 10 individuals and he tells them, go show yourselves to the priests, verse 14. Again, that's about Leviticus 13 and 14. The priest couldn't do anything to heal you. All the priest could do was deem that you were clean. He was the one who saw the sore, declared that it was an infectious skin disease and sent you outside the camp. And now he's the only one who can look at your healed arm or sore or body or whatever it is and declare that you are clean. And then he says, these are the sacrifices that you need to offer and you can be brought back into the temple and back into purity. And so what's interesting though, is you gotta keep the whole story in mind. They're still leprous when Jesus says, go show yourself to the priests. And so if you were a first century Jewish individual or Samaritan individual, and you're hearing this through oral tradition or you're reading this after Luke wrote it down, you would get to this part and see Jesus say, go show yourselves to the priests. And you would say, that's not how it works. They've gotta be clean first. They can't go show themselves to the priest. They can't even walk into Jerusalem where the temple is. Let alone actually into the place where the holy God of Israel dwells. I mean, heaven forbid they'll be struck dead. They can't just go show themselves to the priest. And notice, go show yourself to the priests with an S on the end. What's that all about? Well, the group's mixed. At least one guy is a Samaritan could be more. Jews worship at the temple in Jerusalem. Samaritans worship at the temple on Mount Gerizim. Go show yourself at the appropriate place, Jesus says. And what's amazing is that they go. They've already cried out, Jesus, master. And the master said, this is what we're supposed to do. And so they do. And then we're told, end of verse 14, while they were going, They were cleansed, not healed. Because what's the issue at play? Impurity. So yes, it matters that they were healed and they were healed. But what matters most is that they are now clean. And it's not just the one guy. It's they, all 10 of them. All 10 are cleansed. They turn with all of their leprosy. They head off toward their priests on the way as they walk in the faith that this Jesus master is going to have mercy on them. His grace intersects with that in some powerful way and they're cleansed. Verse 15, one of them, seeing that he was healed. One guy has a moment here. He's walking, he looks down at his body Or he notices that I no longer hurt in the places where I had pain and he sees that he's healed. Well, what did Jesus, what happened with Jesus when he heard these guys call out? He saw and he acted. This guy, all of a sudden he's clean, cleansed. He sees and he acts in response to that. And what does that action include? He returned And with a loud voice gave glory to God, he fell down at Jesus' feet, thanking him. Oh, and also, Luke says, he was a Samaritan. Let's start there. They're all leprous. They're all roaming around outside of whatever town this is. And if you were reading this as a Jewish individual, you would think, 
ugh, leprosy, gross. And then you get to this part and you would think, ugh, Samaritan, gross. Leprosy's gone, hooray. Still a Samaritan, gross. Like this guy's got two strikes against him. This group of 10 individuals, however many of them are Jewish and however many of them are Samaritan, their common misery and affliction has brought them together despite the fact that they despised one another. Now they're all cleansed and one guy turns around. Going to the priest is the thing that's supposed to send him back to normal life. That's the place where he can go and be deemed clean, pure, fit to worship. That's the place where he gets the green light to get back in with his community. And he does the unthinkable. He turns around. That's the shocking part. Again, if you're a first century Jewish reader or Samaritan reader, or you're listening to this account being retold in an oral tradition, and it says that seeing that he was healed, he returned, you'd be like, stop, no, he didn't. If anything, he would have picked up the pace to the temple. Because now when he gets there, he can actually go in and actually see the priest and actually be deemed clean. There's no way this guy came back. But he does. And then it gets even wilder because with his leprosy, what's he supposed to do? Stand far off, let people know that he is unclean. He has not been deemed ritually pure. And what's he do? He goes right up to Jesus' feet and falls down there. Everybody that's there with Jesus, the disciples and whatever else the crowd looked like, would have known who this man was. They just saw him. Now he's come back, and he is not stopping. He's going right to Jesus' feet, and he falls down. And when we were told that they raised their voices to say, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us, the word there is phonus, their voice, like phone, When this guy comes back and he's glorifying God and praising him and he falls down at Jesus' feet, thanking him, it's with a loud voice, faunus megalos, megaphone. It's like this guy's got a bullhorn at Jesus' feet and he is declaring God's glory. He's declaring gratitude, right? He's giving thanks to Jesus. Jesus saved this man cleansed him from his impurity. He's removed his alienation from community. He's removed his unworthiness to worship. And then Jesus sees this man and he asks his rhetorical questions. Were not 10 cleansed? The answer to that is yes. Where are the other nine? The answer to that is who knows? Didn't any return to give glory to God except this foreigner, the Samaritan? And he told him, get up, go on your way. Your faith has saved you. Get up, go on your way, nothing about gratitude. If you take this and we turn it into a moral story about gratitude, not only have we created a self-salvation strategy, we've also inserted something that Jesus doesn't make the main point. We're making the main point. We're supposed to be seeing about Jesus. Jesus sees and acts that he's full of mercy and compassion and grace, that he is master. He's worthy of obedience. He possesses power to cleanse. He's worthy of glory, honor, praise, thanks. 
And then we see that Jesus calls out the man's faith. It was his faith that led him to go away from Jesus toward the priest, despite the fact that he had leprosy. And then it was his faith that is demonstrated when he turns around and doesn't go to the priest now, but comes back to Jesus. And Jesus calls that out and commends it. It's worth making a point about gratitude here. Gratitude is an acknowledgement of the grace that saves. That is true. It's true throughout all of scripture. Followers of Jesus are to be grateful people, not so that we might be saved, but in acknowledgement of the fact that we have been saved. The point as it relates to gratitude is not that gratitude is what we need for salvation. The point as it relates to gratitude is that gratitude is a faith-inspired response to the grace and the goodness of Jesus. The goodness of Jesus that saves us, has mercy upon us, extends grace to us, cleanses us, heals us, makes us new, saves us. But the thing that makes this guy stand out is that while nine go toward the priests, one comes back. While nine move away from Jesus, don't overthink it. One returns. Like, that's the thing that is supposed to stand out. Followers of Jesus continually turn and return to Jesus. The shocking thing in the story is that this guy would see that he's clean, pump the brakes, and turn back around. Jesus knows that the other 10 were cleansed too. He says as much in his rhetorical questions. But nine continued on to the priests because they felt like it was the priest that could ultimately help them while one guy understands the reality of the situation and goes back to Jesus. Nine go to the priests so that they can go about their old lives. One guy comes back because he has seen what has happened and now life is totally different. Nine want to go back to their old community. One goes back to the master, the king. Because that's who Jesus is. And this guy is now living in response to who Jesus is. In the middle of this whole, like what would be a life-altering experience, this guy shuns what would be culturally, religiously expected. And he returns to Jesus. That's the beauty of the account. And that is what makes followers of Jesus different from the rest of the world. We're not different from the world because we're morally superior. In fact, we acknowledge our need for a savior. And when we do that, we're announcing to the world that we understand that we are morally broken. And then on the other side of salvation, we're gaining an ever clearer sense of our own sin and our own brokenness. We're not different from the world because we've got some secret kind of knowledge. The only thing that differentiates those who follow Jesus and those who don't is Jesus. Like, that's it. In all things, at all times, the thing that makes a follower of Jesus different or stand out from the rest of the world is that we're a people who are consistently turning and returning to Jesus. We do this once at our moment of salvation and then the very basis of walking in relationship with Jesus is the fact that we learn and grow over the course of our lives to do so continually. Alistair Begg says it this way. 
When a man or a woman is transformed by the miraculous power of God, it brings them always to Christ. Therefore, you should beware of any experience that takes you anywhere other than Christ or offers you satisfaction beyond or separate from Christ. We talk about living in relationship with Jesus. Like, what are, what are we talking about? What does it actually mean to live in relationship with Jesus? Well, what does it mean to live in relationship with anyone? Think about who your closest relationship is. Mine is my wife, Melody. What is it that ultimately distinguishes my relationship with Melody and its closeness? What distinguishes that is that more so than any other human being on planet Earth, I turn and return to her more than anyone else. I get to the end of a work day, where am I headed? Back home to where Melody is. We get in a conflict, even if my flesh wants to do something different, what am I committed to doing? Turning and returning to her. We need to make a decision. There's something going on in life. I don't just snap to one myself. I turn and I return to Jesus. In all of your relationships, the proximity of those relationships is determined by how often you would turn to that person. You got close friends, you turn to them more than you turn to an acquaintance. So what is it to live in relationship with Jesus? Well, to live in relationship with Jesus is to consistently turn and return to him. That if the central thing to you is going to be the fact that you are a follower of Jesus, it means that the most common thing that's going to be happening in your life is a return to Jesus, a turning to Jesus all the time. There's a scene in John's gospel, chapter six, where Jesus gives a string of very difficult teachings and we're told that a number of followers leave him or abandon him. And in the middle of that, Jesus looks to the 12 and he says, are you going to leave too? And the response is, where else would we go? You're the one who has the words of life. There's nowhere else to turn, Jesus. It's only to you. That's what it is to be a follower of Jesus. And so let's be practical about that. Like, what does that mean in actual daily life? Well, take the most direct picture from this passage. When something wondrous and joyful happens in your life, what do you do? Well, wonderful and joyous things happen in everybody's lives. God is kind of common grace extends to all of us all humanity, whether we're followers of his or not. But what distinguishes a Christian in the middle of the good thing happening from the rest of the world is that a Christian would return and with a loud voice give glory to God, fall face down at his feet, thanking him. That's what it would be to be a follower of Jesus. Think even just physically about it. You're here this morning. You drove your body to a church and came inside here, why as a way to physically demonstrate the fact that you are turning and facing Jesus and giving him the glory and the praise and the thanks and the honor that is due to him? Why is it that you would cultivate or that it would be a good idea to cultivate a habit of getting into scripture so that physically once a day you put in front of your eyeballs the truth of who God is, the beauty of the gospel, that you would return to him in that way. Why is it that the Bible would tell us to pray continually? Well, because where else are we going to go, Jesus? You have the words of life. Why is it that on some Sundays, every other week, we would take communion? So you 
got to hold in your hands and put directly in front of your eyeballs the body of Christ broken for you and the blood of Christ poured out for you. And in that sort of way, literally just physically make your heart and your mind turn and return to Jesus. You would see him in that way. Think about spiritually in the sense of sin. Something happens in your life. Sin is brought to light either in your attitudes and actions by the Holy Spirit or it's brought to light because someone else confronts you with the way your sin has bumped into their life. What does the Bible tell us to do in those moments? Repent. What is repentance? Stop and turn around. Stop and turn and return to Jesus. And there's all this shame and guilt that wells up in us as it relates to this process. And so we think to ourselves, well, I can't stop and turn back to Jesus because what happens if I stop and turn back to Jesus and when I turn and look around, he's turned his back on me. Well, brother or sister in Christ, the good news of the gospel is that that's never going to happen. Romans 8, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Every time in the middle of your sin, when you stop and you turn around, the gospel reminds us that Jesus is there, arms outstretched, body broken, blood poured out, and he's taking you back every single time. Like that is the good news of the gospel. So when the shame and the guilt wells up, you remind yourself, what it is to walk in relationship with Jesus is to recognize that his grace called me to him once and keeps calling me back despite my own sin. And what would make you different from the rest of the world? Maybe the rest of the world wrongs somebody else and seeks forgiveness. Maybe. But what the rest of the world doesn't do in response to their sin is go back to Jesus. Think about sort of the emotional, circumstantial things that happen in your life. Whether it be something joyous, a large decision, it could be a tragedy that comes into your life. What would differentiate you from the rest of the world in the middle of those things? It would be that we would turn and return to Jesus in them. I mean, the best picture of this is Job. He's lost everything. He's sitting in an ash heap. He's torn his ropes. We're told that he's literally using a shard of pottery to scrape the wounds, the boils off of his arm. And what does he say? Naked I came from the womb, and naked I will return. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. What would differentiate Job from anyone else in the middle of that moment? It doesn't hurt any less. There aren't fewer tears. He's not like immune to the pain, but he's just turning and he's returning and facing God in the middle of it. That's what would just differentiate a follower of Jesus. How about an issue that happens societally or culturally in our community or in the world at large? We got plenty of those today. What would differentiate a follower of Jesus from anyone else? It's that in the middle of that, we wouldn't rush to our favorite pundit or talking head. We wouldn't just look for how it is that everybody else is handling this thing. In the middle of whatever is happening in our world and in our society or in our community, we would say, first and foremost, how do I turn and return to Jesus in the middle of this thing? 
and walk in relationship with him. That is the thing that makes Christians different than the rest of the world, that we're people who are consistently turning back and returning to Jesus. And now here's where we need to be careful. It's not then that turning and returning to Jesus becomes the framework whereby we try to save ourselves. It's that God's grace is the thing that drew us there the first time, and it is God's grace that will continue to draw us there as life goes. And the longer we walk in relationship with Jesus and grow in relationship with him, he is faithful to teach us how to become more and more and more comfortable turning and returning. This guy gets cleansed and goes back. That's what sets him apart. That's who we are to be as followers of Jesus. We see the majesty of the king and we would want to go nowhere else other than ever always back to him. There's an old hymn. We don't sing it here very often. In fact, I can't even remember the last time we sang it here, but the sort of refrain to the hymn is holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. The very first verse of that The next line is, early in the morning, my song shall rise to thee. Like, holy, holy, holy. First thing I do when I wake up is turn and face Jesus and return to him. And then how does it end? Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, all thy works shall praise thy name in earth and sky and sea. Where's it all gonna end up? Well, what's gonna happen at the end of all things? Jesus is gonna come back or you're gonna die and you're gonna go and you're gonna stand in your moment of judgment and what are the two options? Being gathered either to him or sent away from him. And what's the picture at the end of all things? That everything is returning to the king. And eternity is going to be marked by either dwelling in his presence or being removed from it. That's it. And the only basis for that will be Jesus, period. Ever, only, always. Followers of Jesus consistently turn and return to Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's sing.